This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Hello, this is Eric Rostad. I'm coming to you from Spring Hill, Tennessee, which is right outside of Nashville. Today, I'm going to cover a book called The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. This was book 40 of my list of 52 books from 2017. So we're actually going back a few years here, but uh, this was one of my favorite books for the entire project so far. And that is of, of over 100 books. This is this is one of my, my top ones. So I wanted to be sure to, to cover it. Uh, this episode is going to consist of three segments. The first one will be a brief introduction to the book, uh, along with my initial reaction. The second segment is going to contain a few ideas, and as well as uh, one scene that just completely blew me away. Uh, the third segment will be the one thing, the one key takeaway that I want to leave with you and uh, that, that I always hope to remember from this book. I also hope that by the end of this episode, you'll want to read this book as well. So let's get started a little bit with the book. Uh, the author is Tom Wolfe. He was born in 1930 and passed away just last year, May 14th of 2018. He is, or he was, an American author and journalist, widely known for his association with a term called New Journalism, which was a style of news writing and journalism developed in the 60s and 70s. And one of the one of the, th- the key parts of that is that he would write in the present tense. So I, I guess before that, they would always write articles in the past tense, and, and he put it in the present tense. It, it ch- gave a little more action to it, and uh, that was one, one of the things that he, he did as part of this, his association with this, this new journalism. He was also the author of, of a, a number of other books. Uh, a few of those that, that may, you, you may have heard of before, are the electric Kool-Aid acid test, kind of about the, the drug culture of the 60s, Bonfire of, of the Vanities, and then A Man in Full. And A Man in Full is the only other book I've ever read by, by Tom Wolfe. And I read that because it's about Atlanta, or, or it takes place in Atlanta. And it's, it's uh, about politics. And I, I knew someone who, who worked in the in the main governor's office in, in Atlanta. And he said, uh, that book pretty much encapsulated what, what, uh, what Atlanta was like in, in a lot of, in, in many regards. So, uh, that was a good one. If, if you ever, uh, want to read another of Tom's books, this, this one was suggest suggested by Ryan holiday in a Tim Ferriss show podcast. And that was episode 319. So, that's how I heard about the book. Uh, my 2017 reading list was based on uh, of all all books I chose from from that year were were ones that were suggested in the book Tools of Titans. And so Ryan Holiday was uh, one of the people in in Tools of Titans, and uh, so this book showed up and and I chose it uh, mainly because I had re- read A Man in Full in the past. So this one this one was written. Uh, the right stuff was written in 1979, so just to give it the the date of, of which when it was written, and it it was written about the seven astronauts that uh, 
who were the first to go up into space. So this this is not about the astronauts that that did the moon landings, the the Apollo uh, moon landing landings in the seventies, uh, but this was the the precursor to that, and uh, a lot of what they learned they applied to the to the moon moon landing. But uh, these were the first guys to go up. So the kind of the the test pilots, in in a lot of ways, um, the guinea pigs to to go up into space and and to make sure that they could they could do that. As, as for the right stuff and, and why it's called that, I, I want to read from page three in the book. And this is the author's reason of, of the origin of the book. So he states, This book originated with some ordinary curiosity. What is it, I wondered, that makes a man willing to sit on top of an enormous Roman candle, such as a redstone, Atlas, Titan, or Saturn rocket, and wait for someone to light the fuse? I decided on the simplest approach possible. I would ask a few astronauts and find out. So I asked a few in December of 1972 when they gathered at Cape Canaveral to watch the last mission to the moon, Apollo 17. I discovered quickly enough that none of them, no matter how talkative otherwise, was about to answer the question or even linger for more than a few seconds on the subject at the heart of it, which is to say, courage. And Tom call, Tom Wolf calls this courage the right stuff, but it, it goes beyond courage. Uh, he says there's no, there's no test to see if you have the right stuff, but the astronauts had to have this right stuff to be able to to be the ones to to go first into space, so we'll talk about about that a lot in the next section. But uh, that's where the the title of of the book comes comes from. I read this between October thirtieth and November seventh of two thousand and seventeen, uh, and my initial reaction to the book is was I I loved it. I I I, I absolutely loved it. I it was, for two thousand seventeen. It was my number three top favorite book for for that that year and if we look at all the books that i've i've read for the books of titans project uh which at this point is over 100 this this still ranks at number five overall of of all those books so uh part of it is i didn't know any of the history of these seven astronauts and so a lot of this was was new to me and and it was just it was also cool that it had taken place in the 60s i mean my my parents were alive while this was going on uh so i actually purchased this book for my dad and uh and he he recently read it as well but um just an an amazing history i'd never really thought about all that went into just even starting to get the astronauts up into into space well before the the apollo moon landing so a lot of detail about that and exciting detail, exciting uh, uh, information in this book. And then the way Tom Wolf writes and puts it all together is is astonishing. So I, I want to highlight one last thing in this in this first segment, and that is that there is an illustrated version of this book as well. Uh, so full of photos and uh, I, I read this book on my iPad, but I, I also had just the the original hardback cover of the book, but after reading it, I, I saw that they had this illustrated version, and I purchased that as well. And I, I, I highly recommend it. That uh, if if you if you're planning on reading this book, it's it's a huge book, the illustrated one. But um, if you're going to be sitting at a desk or or in a chair reading it, and you know not not necessarily out and about where it would be too cumbersome to to carry around, get the illustrated version because it shows photos of the 
the planes, the rockets, and the astronauts, and the presidents, and everything as it's happening, as you're reading about it. So it just gives a little more context to to what you're reading. So I, I, I suggest getting that uh, that illustrated book if you can if you can find a copy. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. The Books of Titans project is based around the idea of having a yearly reading list and sharing that list with others. With that in mind, I've actually opened up the Books of Titans website to where you can now share your reading list. Just go to booksoftitans.com forward slash mybooks and you'll see three different options. The first one starting at just $9 a month where you can share your reading list. I'll put it up into a visually stunning format to where you can take screenshots of that, share it on social media, and then have access to the back end of the website to where you can review each book, rate it, say when you started reading it, finished reading it, and then also get other comments from the community on on those particular books. If you want to see what this looks like, you can go to booksoftitans.com forward slash Stuart dash Browning. Stuart shared his list. He also shared lists going back to 2004. Uh, for his yearly reading list, so that that's been really interesting to look at that and and see what uh, Stuart in the in the UK has been been reading, um, and you can see my list. Uh, we we also just put Jason's list up for 2019, so lots of uh, good book su- suggestions there, and and also the ability now for you to share your your list. So again, just go to booksoftitans.com forward slash my books for more details. Also wanted to let you know that Jason will be back soon. He's going to be doing some solo episodes like these. And then we also have some dual episodes that will be coming up for books that we have both read. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast so, so that you get those on, on your device that you use for, for listening to, to the podcast. So now back into the book. First thing I want to highlight is The Right Stuff. So that's the title of the book, but let's let's dig in a little deeper into, into what that means. And Tom Wolfe presents the right stuff in sort of two different storylines throughout the book. One storyline is a group of test pilots who are at Edwards Air Force Base, and they are pushing the limits on everything. I mean, they're, they're pushing speed. They're pushing how high they're going. Uh, they're, they're doing tricks in, in flight. And this is, this is all happening soon after... World War II. And the person that personifies this group of test pilots is Chuck Yeager. Tom Wolfe calls Chuck Yeager the most righteous of all the possessors of the right stuff. And you see, we see Chuck throughout this book in some amazing scenes. Uh, one I'm going to highlight in, in just a second here, but um, so so that's one side. Chuck, uh, Chuck Yeager and, and the test pilots kind of pushing the limits of everything. The other side of the right stuff is these seven astronauts who are called the Mercury Seven, who are the first to go into space. They are, they are, they are also pilots, but to be a pilot to go into space, the main talent that you need to have is basically the ability to do nothing under pressure. So if things seem to be going haywire, you don't start pushing a bunch of, bunch of buttons. You don't try to, to, to change the, the trajectory or anything of, of what's happening. You just try to sit there and not, not do anything. 
and, and it kind of reminds me of that story of, uh, uh, or a little quip of, of in the future, there are only going to be two beings working in a fac- factory, a man and a dog. The man's role will be to feed the dog. And the dog's role will be to make sure that the man doesn't touch any of the machines. And, and it, it's a funny thing, but it, it, uh, it, I thought of that a lot when I was reading this book, because these rockets that were going up into space, they were, they were set up to do what they needed to do with limited or, or zero input from the person going up in, in the capsule to the point where they first set up, sent up monkeys in these capsules and the the astronauts would would get pretty frustrated with that because they thought they thought they had the right stuff you know they thought that that they were chosen for a, for a reason and yet they were replaceable with with apes and so that that contrast is throughout this book this this group of of test pilots crazy great amazing pilots and the mercury 7 that Oh, they're being they're being worshipped as as the people going into space, but they do they really have the right stuff? Because all they have to do is sit there. So very interesting uh, kind of play throughout the throughout the book. And the the uh, in in a scene in in the last part of the book that that really, I mean, it still sticks in my mind and, and just I mean, my heart was racing while I was reading this part of the book. Describes uh. uh aborted flight that that Chuck Yeager had where he had to he had to get out of the he had to eject and he just the the ride down from from ejecting from this plane he he had numerous injuries uh burns and all sorts of stuff and he lands uh by parachute and here's here's the scene a few minutes later the rescue helicopter arrived the medics found Yeager standing out in the mesquite him and some kid who had been passing by. Jaeger was standing erect with his parachute rolled up and his helmet in the crook of his arm right out of the manual and staring at them quite levelly out of what was left of his face as if they had had an appointment and he was on time. And that is the... He encapsulates the right stuff. And if you read this book and you read the account of, of what he went through coming down and, and finally landing uh, a parachute landing and for him to be standing there, you know, everything rolled up. He's just in tremendous pain. Uh, half of his face is basically burned off. Uh, and, and he's just, he's standing there waiting for these guys to come get him. Like he had the right stuff and, oh man, that, that was a cool, that was a really cool part of the book. The second thing I want to highlight is an idea that that Tom Wolfe highlights throughout the book, and that is that the Mercury Seven pilots he he said that they were like single combat warriors of old, and what he means by that is uh, one story he he highlights is David versus Goliath, and, and in that story, it's it's a single combat warrior on behalf of an entire army. So Goliath is of the Philistines and he is trying to get the Israelites to fight him. But he just wants to fight one guy. And based on that fight, that will determine who wins. So 
one person from each side fight, and then whoever wins, that's that's who wins. So that's the idea of the single combat warrior. And Tom Wolfe says that the obsession of the American public with these seven seven astronauts, it was because they were viewed as single combat warriors. You know, there there were a lot of unknowns in these flights, uh, rockets that that the U.S. had set up sent up in the past. They had a habit of of burning up, of of exploding, and so here were these seven guys, brave guys. Didn't know what was going to happen to them, but they were taking on that role of the single combat warrior because it was a battle against Russia on on who would be first into space, and the thinking went that whoever was first into space would could almost have like this heavenly ability to rain down terror on, on everyone else. And so I want to just highlight a, a quick, uh, quick section here. The space war was on. They were risking their lives for their country, for their people, in the fateful testing versus the powerful Soviet integral. And even though the archaic term itself had disappeared from memory, they would receive all the homage, all the fame, all the honor, and the heroic status before the fact of the single combat warrior. And that's the other thing he talks about of the, the single combat warrior, that they're they're applauded, they're they're loved on by the masses even before they do what they're gonna do. And it's it's almost like everyone's hope is in these people and in what they're gonna do. And I, I thought it was just a brilliant way that that Tom Wolf highlighted what why this was so important at that time in history and what people were projecting onto these seven astronauts. It wasn't just that they were going into space and, and um, they were trying new things. It's, it's like the hope of the nation for a period of a few years was, was all, all, all on these seven astronauts. So just a neat, neat theme that we see throughout, throughout the book there. The third part that I want to highlight, this, this blew me away. And I'm just going to read the section here because I, I can't do a better job of describing it than, than how it's been written. So here, here it goes. It's, it's a rather large section, so, so stick with me, but uh, this, this, this is amazing. Not long after that, Kennedy brought the seven astronauts to the White House for a smaller, more personal visit. Kennedy's father was there, jo- Joseph Kennedy. The old man had had a stroke, and half of his body was paralyzed, and he was sitting in a wheelchair. The president took the seven astronauts in to meet his father, and the first one he introduced to him was John, John Glenn, the first American to orbit the Earth and challenge the Russians in the heavens. The old man, Joe Kennedy, reaches up with his one good hand to shake hands with John, and suddenly he starts crying. But the thing is, only half of his face is crying because of the stroke. One half of his face isn't moving a muscle. It's set, absolutely impassive. But the other half, well, it's blubbering. That's the word for it. His eyebrow is curling down over his eye the way it does when you're really bawling. And the tears are streaming out of the crevice where his eyebrow and his eye and his nose come together. And one of his nostrils is quivering and his lips are writhing and contorting on that side. And his chin is all pulled up and pitted and trembling. But just on the one side, the other side is just staring at John as if he see, if he saw right through him as if he were just another Marine colonel whose career had somehow led him briefly into the White House. The president would lean down and put his arm around the old man's shoulders and say, 
Now, now, Dad, it's all right, it's okay. But Joe Kennedy was still crying when they left the room. Obviously, if the man hadn't had a stroke, he wouldn't have burst out crying. Until his stroke, he had been a bear. Nevertheless, the emotion was there, and it would have been there whether he had had a stroke or not. That was what the sight of John Glenn did to the Americans at that time. It primed them for the tears, and those tears ran like a river all over America. It was an extraordinary thing, being the sort of mortal who brought tears to other men's eyes. Amazing. I just, and just to think, I mean, John F. Kennedy's father, just like just bawling in the presence of these astronauts. Just an amazing scene. And, and you see what one guy, what his response was to these astronauts and, and kind of put that across the, the entire United States. But for, for it to be the president's father and, and oh man, what a, what a scene and, and what a way of, of writing it up. Now into segment three, where I covered the one thing, my one key takeaway, the one thing I want to leave with you and, and the one thing I always hope to remember when I think back to this book. And that is... Mach 1. Chuck Yeager was the first to break the speed of sound, to break, to, to break Mach 1. And the book talks about that a lot. It talks about him getting up to that point and, and, and other pilots doing the same. And as pilots begin to approach the speed of sound, uh, they'd get around 0.7 of Mach 1, so 70% of the way there, and the the air, airplane would, would just start shaking, and the pressure was so much that it would be hard to move your hands to, to get to the controls. The controls themselves themselves would, would lock or freeze to where you, you couldn't move them, and and the pilots would would die. They would crash because they they couldn't they couldn't reach the controls and they couldn't move them. And the year before Jaeger broke the sound barrier, which was 1947, uh, the son of a famous British aircraft designer and builder had died trying to to reach Mach one. His his plane started buffeting and and just shaking, and then it just disintegrated, and he was killed. And a quote from the book here, this led engineers to speculate that when shockwaves became so severe and unpredictable at Mach 1, no aircraft could survive them. They started talking about the sonic wall and the sound barrier. And Chuck Yeager, not being an engineer, didn't believe that the barrier existed. So on October 14th, 1947, he went in a plane called the X-1 plane and for the purpose of, of attempting to, to break the sound barrier. So just put, put yourself in this mindset for a minute. Most of the world is concerned that there's some sort of a, a point that you can't go past. And all of the evidence is pointing to the closer you're getting to Mach 1, the more uncontrollable the plane gets. It, the, the shakier it is, the harder it is to, to move the controls and all that. So the perception is it's not possible, or if it is, 
bad things could happen to the plane, the pilot, etc. Jaeger goes up and he, well, I'm going to read it. Just as Jaeger had predicted, as the X-1 approached Mach 1, the stability improved. Jaeger had his eyes primed on the machometer. The needle reached 0.96, fluctuated, and went off the scale. And in that moment, on the ground, they heard a boom rock over the desert floor. So he had broken the sound barrier. And, And here's the thing. When he reached Mach 1, it was completely smooth. It was, it was total peace. And it, 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 the book describes it as just being the perfect thing for a pilot. But to get to that, Jaeger had to, to hold on. He had to, he had to go through that, uh, the, the plane shaking, not knowing what was going to happen. But he reaches Mach 1 and it's just peace. And boy, isn't that a, isn't that a picture of, of so much of life? I mean, we, we're scared of things uh, that we're going into. Uh, everything, all of our experience, other people are telling us you, you don't want to go any further than this point because things are going to get hard, things are going to get shaky, and you, you don't know what's going to happen if you keep going. But, but Jaeger kept going, and it was smooth. He, and he broke the sound barrier, and that, that was something that had to be broken for them to get into space and, and for the rockets and, and just the, the knowledge and, and all that. And he, he did it, and he wasn't afraid of it. He, he didn't believe that the, this barrier existed, and because of that, he was, he was the person to break the sound barrier. And just, just a really amazing, amazing picture and, and something I hope that, that sticks in your mind as, as you go forward. So just to recap, uh, I loved this book. It was an excellent book. Tom Wolfe just does amazing things in this book. He ties the astronauts to roles of that of the single combat warrior. There's a part in the book where he impersonates an ape for a while. So I described those apes going up into the, to the ships. And so he impersonates an ape on what they must've been thinking as they're, as they're in these, uh, these ships going or these capsules going up into space. So that, that was cool. And then that last section of Jaeger's fall from the plane is, is just incredible. And, And the way Tom writes in that section is it'll be like, four to 10 word little spurts of sentences. And you just get this, this sense of rapid action and your heart starts beating while you're reading it. And it's, it's intense. And, and he would do that at different parts of the book. And I mean, you, you would actually, I I would, I would write uh, in my iPad notes, I would write, man, that was so intense. And, and he just has this great way of, of, of getting you in the action and, and whether it's the way he's writing the, the way he describes it, but it, it was, it was great. It was even, it was intense in that, in that, in that sense. And it was also funny. He just, he's, he has a, a, a quirky and, and funny way of writing. And, and I really appreciate that. And it just brings to life this period of history. That's not too long ago. I mean, we're talking the 1960s. So just, 50 plus years ago, uh, a period that um, 
some of some of you who are listening probably lived through. Uh, my my parents lived through it, and what an amazing part of of history of of our history, of of the world's history, and I didn't know anything about it going into reading this book. So, if if you want to learn more about it, this is an amazing book to read. It's a it's a thrilling book, and even if you do know everything about it, if you lived through it, you'll probably enjoy just just reliving it through through Tom Wolfe's writing. So please go pick up this book. This is one of my favorites. Read the read the hardcover, but uh, if you can splurge and, and get that illustrated copy and, and see the pictures while you're while you're reading about these different things. That's going to do it for this episode. Before I sign off, just a reminder that you can now share your own reading list on the Books of Titans website by going to booksoftitans.com forward slash mybooks. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter at Books of Titans. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast and find all our past episodes through iTunes, the Android Marketplace, or any other podcast manager of your choice. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to give it a rating. comment on it or share it with your friends uh share share your favorite episodes on on social media next week uh, either jason or, or i will be back with another book and until then keep reading keep learning and keep listening i'm out